Welcome to the Mind Money Spectrum Podcast, where your hosts, Aaron Ogti and Trishal Patel, go beyond traditional finance questions to help you explore how to use your money to achieve the freedom you want in life. In this episode, Aaron and Trishal discuss how taxes work in non-qualified investment accounts. Without account-level IRS rules or benefits, it's the actual investments inside of these accounts that drive the tax implications. Savings accounts and bonds generate taxes on interest. Stocks may have dividends and capital gain taxes, which depend on your income and holding period. And mutual funds can create a tax burden even if you don't sell any shares. Given all this, how do you think about which investments to pick and what type of accounts to use? They compare different strategies, expand on the benefits of buy and hold, and discuss asset allocation versus asset location. By understanding after-tax total return, you can find the gray area on the spectrum between investments and taxes that makes the most sense for your situation. And now, on to our conversation. Hi, my name is Aaron Ogti. I'm a financial advisor in the Bay Area, and I'm here with Trisha Patel, a wealth manager on the East Coast. Hey, Aaron. Great to be here today, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Great to be here as well. It is a lovely day as we shelter in place even longer. So last week, we talked about Roth IRAs and traditional IRAs and tried to give you a good understanding of how the taxes and limits and just IRS rules impact your decisions when you are saving for future goals. And because those tend to be retirement accounts, you're usually saving for retirement. But one of the things we didn't really talk about was after you've kind of used up the benefits that retirement accounts offer, if you want to keep saving and investing, or it's not for retirement specifically, the most likely thing you're going to do is use just a regular taxable investment account. This is a brokerage account. This will be if you open up an E-Trade account in your own name, you wanted to buy a stock or a bond or a mutual fund. And this is possibly more common than using retirement accounts because it allows you to access that money before retirement. And you, can, you have the flexibility to do whatever you want with it. There's no tax rules. There's no IRS rules on the account level. And that flexibility ends up making a big difference for most people's lives. Sometimes this is how people save up for a down payment on a house. Talked about 529 plan discussion and save for college. If it's money that might go to college, but might go to something else like a second home, a taxable investment account works really well. So today we want to talk about some of the taxes on the investments inside those types of accounts. So Anytime you hear a financial advisor talk about qualified accounts, those are tax qualified accounts like IRAs, 401ks. It means that if they follow certain IRS rules, they qualify for certain tax benefits. The opposite would be a non-qualified account. This means that there's no IRS rules at the account level. It's only the taxes based on whatever is inside that account. So, Trishal, do you mind giving us a, I was going to say brief, but I feel like it's just going to be a big primer on what are some of the taxes involved on the investments inside a non-qualified or taxable investment account? Sure, Aaron. Happy to dig into that. To begin, 
we think about income in general and how it's taxed, your first level of income is probably your paycheck. And this is something that gets taxed at something called ordinary income tax rates. And these tax rates generally range from around 10% if you're making not so much money to around 37, that's the highest percent if you're in the highest tax bracket of around 622,000 if you're married and filing jointly. Now, these taxes can be pretty high and they're based on your income, but there's a separate set of taxes for income that's generated through your investments and they all have different rules. So let's take a simple example of buying a stock and talk about the taxes involved with just a stock. So one thing about a stock is if you buy it for let's say $10 and you sell it for $12, you had a gain of $2. So you'll be taxed on that gain. And the tax rate for that $2 gain depends on a few things. First, it depends on how long you held that stock. If you held it in the short term for less than a year, well, then you'll be taxed at your income tax rate, your ordinary income tax rate. Those are those numbers I just mentioned a minute ago. But if you hold it for longer than a year, you get taxed at something known as the long-term capital gains tax rate. And these rates are much lower. They're designed to incentivize people to not buy and sell in the short term, but to hold things for a longer period. And these tax rates can be as low as 0% and as high as 20%. But most people, if you're married and you have an income of between 80 to 497,000 a year, you'll be paying about 15% for a capital gains. That'll cover most situations. Now, that's capital gains and, and that's short terms and long term, but there are other types of income that are associated with holding a stock. And the key one that we're, we want to mention is dividends. So when you own a stock, it may provide dividends either as a special dividend, meaning the company just has enough money that they don't know what to do with and they want to pass it on to the investors, or they might have a schedule of dividends that they try to follow on a likely quarterly or semi-annual or annual basis. Now these dividends are also taxed two ways. First, there's this notion of non-qualified dividends. And then there's this notion of qualified dividends. So for non-qualified dividends, these are taxed at the ordinary income tax rates, which are those higher tax rates that I mentioned. And these are typically taxed at a non-qualified level if you have not been holding the stock for a certain amount of time around that dividend date. It's about 120 days. So if you're holding that stock in a smaller window within that period, then you'll be taxed at this higher rate. But if you've been holding this stock for outside of that window for a longer period, then you'll be taxed at a lower rate that are similar or in line with that lower capital gains rate. So that's one thing to think about when you're thinking about dividends. Again, the government wants you to hold on to these for a longer period of time, and they're going to give you a lower tax rate for doing so. Those are the two main types of taxes that we want to think about with stocks. And the other thing I'll throw in is most portfolios are a mix of stocks and bonds. So Bonds also have their own cash flows associated with them. When you buy a bond, most likely you might get a payment or a coupon amount associated with that bond. It can be 
semi-annual, annual, or depending on the bond, or even less. And the tricky thing about bonds is the income or interest earned on bonds is actually taxed at those higher ordinary income tax rates, depending on if the, the bond has a special exemption. And th this is something that might happen if it's a municipal bond. So that, that's something to think about, but that specifics might be beyond the scope of this hopefully high level <laughs> introduction. So the, the, those are the key things to think about. The last thing I want to just mention before we dig deeper into all of this is that if you hold on to a stock and you don't sell it in a given year, you can hold on to it for 10 years and not pay any capital gains. The capital gains happens when you sell the stock. And finally, if you sell the stock at a loss, you actually get to have the ability to count those losses against other gains so it can reduce your overall tax burden. Again, that's the quick and dirty. We'll dig into it a little bit deeper, but that's a high level. I like that. I, I appreciate that. That is a great primer. It's the not too long, but really good information. So when I start thinking about taxes in non-qualified accounts, one of the things I first point out for most people, their experience, is probably just with their checking or savings account. That if they have a savings account at their bank and that has an interest rate, they actually get a 1099 at the end of the year or next the following spring and they pay taxes on that interest. So if there's a $100 and it earns 1% or $1,000 that earns 1%, they, they'll get a 1099 for that $10 in interest they earned over the previous year. What's also even annoying is if you had less than $10 in interest, they won't send you that 1099 and then you're stuck calculating those payments yourself because even if you have a dollar in interest, you owe taxes on that dollar. I'm going to leave that gray area for the CPA of if we don't get a 1099 and the IRS is not notified because I don't think the IRS learns about that interest. I don't know the reasonable basis on which that can be added because I think it's the uh, diminished amount. But again, that's gonna be a, that's a different conversation. Maybe not even for us. That's a, that's a good, that's a CPA conversation. Yeah, but bring that up with your CPA. Hey, I followed the rule of five and got five different answers. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so with a taxable investment account or any non-qualified account, and the investment is the savings aspect. So you've opened a bank account and that savings account generates interest. You get a 1099 for the interest that you earn. And this is one of the big themes is with the retirement accounts, it's tax deferred. It's only tracking money going in and out of the account. You never get a 1099 based on the investments inside that account. With a taxable account, with a non-qualified investment account, you will get 1099s based on the actions and the types of investments that you have. So just the regular checking and savings, if it generates interest, you pay taxes on that interest. Then working up the risk return spectrum, if you were buy a bond or a bond mutual fund, then the mutual fund will pay out all of that interest. Even if it gets reinvested, you still owe taxes on the interest that those bonds earned. And works the same way if you have a mutual fund that holds stocks. As the 
mutual fund buys and sells stocks inside the fund and the stocks they do hold issue dividends, you pay capital gains on the actions of the mutual fund manager inside that fund. You pay, you pay dividends on the dividends that that fund received. And what's interesting, but maybe not as enjoyable, when you sell the mutual fund, you also pay your own personal capital gains on that mutual fund. So this is one of the things you need to be a little careful of is if you're buying an individual stock and you hold it and you never sell, you don't owe capital gains until you sell. And if you buy 10 individual stocks and you just never sell them, you don't owe capital gains. Depending on the company, some companies issue dividends. Some companies will do stock buybacks. And so you might owe taxes on those dividends. But if you just never sell it, you won't owe any capital gains. With a mutual fund that's invested in a lot of different stocks, the buying and selling of stocks inside the mutual fund can generate taxes for you, even though you haven't sold your part of the investment. So that's one thing to be aware of that usually after good years, mutual funds have to distribute their profits, so they have to distribute their capital gains. There are ways that they can structure this so that if they can get enough kind of internal losses to offset their gains, the fund may not have it's called a capital gains distribution. There are some funds that really focus on this, that they're going to preserve your assets by not issuing uh, capital gains distributions if they can avoid it, but they have certain rules that they have to follow. So is there anything that you think of when it comes to mutual funds? It actually kind of works the same way with ETFs. There's less buying and selling, so you're less likely to have capital gains but if there's a change in the index, if a company falls out of the index and that's the shares inside the ETF get sold, that's one way that an ETF could generate capital gains. If you have a broad enough portfolio, you're, you're very likely going to have dividends. So you will be paying taxes along the way of both holding mutual funds and holding ETFs. Are there any other kind of common investments that you see that people might be buying in a non-qualified accounts and what their tax might be? Well, in relation to those investments, I think a big distinction is whether those mutual funds or ETFs are actively managed or passively managed. For example, with actively managed mutual funds or ETFs, since you know they have the word active in it, it's quite likely that they are going to be buying and selling a lot more than an index, which is designed to, for example, with the S&P 500, just stick with the S&P 500 and every year a few may drop, a few may come on, but overall you're holding pretty much the same thing. So I think that relates to a pretty important thing to think about is when you see those returns for those mutual funds, what you're looking at is the returns for those mutual funds, but you have to think about what the tax implication is that you're going to have to pay on your end after you get your 1099s. And that's gonna impact your returns. So when you think about investments in general, 
what you want to focus on is not how much you're getting in dividends and not how much you're getting in capital gains, but you want to focus on something known as the total return, meaning what's the return across all of these sources. And in fact, more importantly, you want to focus on what is your after tax total return, because that's after all what really matters. It could very well be that a fund looks nice, but once you factor in the taxes, it may not make sense for you. Or it may make sense for your retirement account where those taxes are deferred. And it may not make sense for an account which does get taxed along the way as a standard broker's accounts would. So that's where I'd make that comparison. And that also comes into play when you think about different styles. For example, some people like dividend stocks because you get that dividend. And some people prefer having that ability to generate income. But one thing to realize is if you don't need that income, what you're basically doing is if you end up reinvesting those dividends, you get those dividends, you pay taxes and you put it right back in. It might be better to just go with a stock that has less dividends and and more in terms of capital gains. There's no reason why a dividend stock should in theory provide you with more income over time than a a stock that doesn't pay dividends. So I think that's a a good point, but that might be more of a investment discussion rather than a tax discussion. Theoretically, super oversimplifying. If a company isn't issuing dividends, that would imply that they're holding on to those, their profits and reinvesting those profits internally, whether it's trying to have new R&D, they're trying to build new offices, they're looking to expand and grow. And this is, again, oversimplifying, but a rough idea of what growth companies are, that they're not looking to send profits to owners, they're looking to reinvest to further growth. Whereas the companies that issue dividends, it might be that there's not as many growth opportunities for them. So they are profitable and they're making money and they're sending those profits to the owners, the owners being the stockholders in the form of these dividends. So that that might imply it's a little more stable, but I agree. We want to look at total return. We want to look at especially after tax total return. And there's so many other investment discussions and reasons to buy one company or another, but we don't do that based just on dividends and kind of the value versus growth. But theoretically, that's what those corporate strategies imply. The, the other thing I'll mention is we, we did bring up the buyback. So that, that is another way to use excess cash such that you're not immediately distributing it as a dividend, but you're using it to effectively lower the amount of shares within a company, which in effect, not dollar for dollar, but it can have the longer term impact of creating more value for the shares, which is just another way of being able to use that excess cash without having to create an immediate taxable event. Yeah, yeah. So when we look at the comparing your after-tax rate of return and both kind of two investments that you have a taxable investment account, they might have the same gross return. They might have the same 
return net of fees, but if one is significantly more active and you're paying taxes on that, a good analysis will incorporate that, that you are better off getting the investment with the greater after-tax rate of return, not just the greater return on the growth side or even greater return net of fees. And this also tends to inform a lot of the analysis when we compare buying and investments in a taxable investment account or in a retirement account. And again, this is kind of in general, individuals' tax rates may differ, tax rates over time may differ, but in general, net worth is greater in any kind of mathematical analysis with tax deferred growth in retirement accounts than taxable investments. And one of the things I want to point out anytime you look at this analysis is they're assuming that when an investment issues a dividend or creates a capital gain or has some kind of taxable event, that you're using that investment to pay the taxes for its own action. So if you buy a mutual fund and you're comparing, if you buy a mutual fund in a Roth IRA versus buying a mutual fund in a taxable investment account, when that mutual fund issues a dividend or has a capital gain distribution and you get a 1099 in the spring, you sell just enough of that mutual fund to pay the taxes for that 1099. And that's how this analysis is done because it's the best way to capture the effects on your overall net worth. However, in practice, I don't want to say it's kind of universal, but pretty much every client, if that mutual fund issues a 1099, they aren't selling shares of the mutual fund to pay the taxes. They're usually paying it out of their checking account or even more likely through their withholdings on their salary, through their income. So their employer withholds taxes based on their salary. When they file a tax return, here's your total tax. Here's your taxes you've already withheld. Here's your refund or how much you owe. The 1099 from that taxable account would actually reduce the refund that you might be getting. That ends up being how it works out. You haven't sold shares to cover its own taxes. You're using other money to pay the taxes in that taxable account. And so in practice, it's one thing to realize if you buy a mutual fund and reinvest dividends and capital gains and buy in a Roth IRA and buy the same mutual fund, same amount, same dollar investment in a taxable investment account, and you reinvest dividends, capital gains, and you never sell your own personal shares, those will grow to the same amount. The difference is you had to pay the taxes along the way from some other money. And this is the thing to be aware of is just anytime you're looking at a good mathematical analysis, they're accounting for that and showing that your net worth is not as high as it would be if you had that tax deferred growth. So this is why most people have different investment accounts. They'll have those tax deferred retirement accounts because that tax deferred growth ends up providing a greater net worth for them. But if they need the money before 59 and a half or there's so many other rules and qualifications and they want a little more flexibility, they may also have taxable investment accounts. So when you think of comparing 
after tax total returns, Patricia, what are other factors that come to mind for you? The other factor that comes to mind is just looking at a, a simple example of investing in a, a Roth or a traditional versus a taxable account, where in the previous conversation, we noticed that if you put the same amount in the traditional or a Roth, you end up with the same amount at the end because basically one, you pay the taxes first and that's with the Roth and with the traditional, you pay the taxes when you take the money out. But either way, you end up with the same amount of money. Now let, let's compare that with a taxable account. Now, as Aaron just mentioned, it's great that in the retirement accounts, you get that tax deferral. But also, let's look at a situation where you're buying a stock and you're holding it in either of these types of accounts, taxable or tax advantaged. And what happens over 30 years? How much benefit do you really get over a good amount of time between these scenarios? So j just to kind of plug that home, let's say you put $6,000 into a traditional or, or Roth. Again, it doesn't matter. And you estimate about a 7% growth over 30 years, just you know, standard reasonable assumptions, you might end up with about 34, 35,000. So your 6,000 will go to 34, 35,000 in these tax advantaged accounts. But if you do the same analysis of holding the stock, again, for simplicity, we're gonna just assume that they don't pay dividends or mm -hmm. you don't have any capital gains along the way. Now in a taxable account, your 6,000 won't grow to 34, 35,000, it'll grow to just under 30,000. So basically it's around an 18% difference. And that's because you didn't get this tax advantage in the taxable account that you did with those retirement accounts. And that's a good amount of difference over 30 years. But the, the issue is you're kind of locking your money up for retirement. So that's something to think about. And when you're saving for retirement, you want to just think about money that, again, you don't need in the short term. Now, there are some special cases that will allow you to access that money before retirement, and it is possible. But if it doesn't fit in one of those cases, then you might have to pay a penalty. So that's something to keep in mind. Yeah, that, that's it's almost the benefits of retirement accounts are that long-term savings it also is a pretty good barrier to taking money out and using it for the wrong thing. It, it's a, a pretty good effective tool of forcing you to leave that money there for long-term. Whereas with the taxable investment accounts, the fact that you know you can access that implies that it gets accessed. And in practice, people do use that money for either short-term emergencies, which does is necessary, or other things that maybe weren't as truly necessary. And this is one of the things I point out with clients is there's a big difference between just the math and what is likely to happen. And if you need to take money out of a retirement account, you can. There's ways you can do it without a penalty. Most of them are hardship-related. So you're having some kind of life emergency or life hardship that you need to access that money. But in general, people do a pretty good job of leaving that money there much longer 
and they're more likely to see that continue to grow. They're more likely to weather volatility and just let it ride. Both taxable investments that ends up getting used for other things in life. It's both the tax benefits of retirement accounts, but also just some of the psychological benefits. I tend to see clients do a better job of growing their net worth when they are consistently saving into retirement accounts because the flexibility that the taxable accounts provide end up getting used for other things in life. So when looking at net worth maximization and trying to grow your ability to generate a future income, retirement accounts work really well for that. It tends to be other goals that taxable investments work really well. It actually could just be emergency reserve, although it's usually want to use cash for that. Could be you're maxing out retirement accounts and you want to do additional savings. But if you can develop the psychology that this particular taxable investment account is long-term growth, any money I'm putting out, I'm not touching for short-term needs, then it can actually work out pretty well. It's, it's not quite as strong as a retirement account, but it does give you a little more of that flexibility. So I'm curious, in practice, how do you see clients use taxable investment accounts? For taxable investment accounts, they might be more geared towards maybe short or near-term purchase or savings hurdle. For example, if you're saving for a new house, so you might need to save for a down payment. That's something to think about. And you don't want to be investing that in as risky of a portfolio as if you're saving for a retirement. Saving for a car and things like that are all short-term measures, and, and those are generally recommended to be in less risky investments. But for medium term or slightly longer term, there are things that may come up, such as saving for education. We mentioned this when we talked about 529s, where there is the opportunity to put money into a tax advantage account for a 529. But if you're not sure that your child will end up using that money for education, you may want to still keep that in a taxable account but still realizing that the duration or the period that you may need is not 40 years, but it may be 20 years from now, or depending on how old your child is or 10 years. Aaron, you did bring up a great point, which I just wanted to hammer home is that it, the retirement accounts do do a good job just you know, psychologically getting you to save every year just a, a good amount consistently. And if you just do that 6,000 in your IRA and you do that, for 40 years, that's a good amount of money. It doesn't sound like much, but 6,000 for 40 years is $1.2 million. So that, mm -hmm. that could be a good chunk of your nest egg if you can just commit to that over your career. Yeah, that, that's the math I usually like to point out. It's like age 20 to age 60, there's seven or 8% rate of return, saving 6,000 per year. And in practice, IRA contribution limits go up over time. So if you do develop this mentality of always maxing it out, it ends up being even greater. That you're increasing your savings over time. And that's one of the best habits that you can develop with systematic savings. And even if we've maxed out a, a retirement account, I try to encourage clients to have that systematic savings. That that behavior, that habit 
ends up being more powerful than actually choosing retirement account or taxable. It's more powerful than choosing what to invest in. So sometimes for new clients, just getting them to save a certain amount per month, every month into a savings account, they're, they're going to set up it automatically. They're going to link, they're checking out to the savings and this move aside into savings. And that helps develop that habit of saving and kind of gets over some of the psychological concerns about, well, what, what if I need that money? What if I can't afford my lifestyle? If I say that, it's like, okay, it's still sitting in cash. Now savings account is growing. It's earning interest. You're paying taxes on that, but eventually we'll get to the point where, okay, we're going to either take that lump sum from savings and move it to an investment, or we're going to start saving directly into the investment accounts. And those ends up being more impactful than that kind of doesn't matter which one, which account we do. It's like, well, it does. It's a marginal benefit. The big powerful benefit is just saving and investing in the first place. I think that that's a great point. And even if you're investing in a taxable account, again, you can realize a large part of these benefits just if you have a long-term strategy where you're not selling in the short term and realizing a lot of these short-term tax consequences. Aaron, you mentioned at the beginning of this episode, if you just buy and hold a stock that doesn't pay any dividends, well, you don't have to pay taxes until many, many years in the future when you decide to sell it. And that can make a big difference between your overall return. So one thing I'd, I'd like to highlight, for example, is let's say you have a, a pretty average return of about like 6.4%. Well, if you're selling that stock every year, like you're turning over to a new company mm-hmm. every year, and this is pretty common when individual investors try to pick stocks, they end up holding for about a year and then they pick another and so on. Make sure they get they hold it for 13 months. They get their long-term capital gains rate. A, a little bit more, yeah. So let's say you just get that long-term capital gains rate. Well, to match that after-tax return of 6.4%, you have to obviously return more than 6.4%. You have to return 8% a year. So that, that's not easy to do. You have to basically do better than the average market return by almost 2%. So that's hard to do. And, and let's say you're one of these really active traders who can't wait a year and you keep <laughs> buying and selling a couple times a year. Well, now to meet that after-tax return of just buying whole and holding for you know ten years of six point four percent, meaning just never selling. Well, now you have to get over a ten percent return a year on average to to match that buy and hold return, and that's really hard to do. So think about the hurdle you might create if you're one of these more ambitious traders who wants to trade a lot it means that you're gonna to have to have much higher returns in the market to catch up to that tax burden. Now, I, I use that high 37% tax rate for that, but realize that the short-term tax rates in almost all scenarios are gonna be higher than your long-term tax rates. That's, that's how they're designed. Yeah, and getting back, I think it's like one of our second conversations of just, if you're buying stocks, stocks are designed as long-term investments that they're designed for many, many, many years. If you think you need that money sooner, you shouldn't be invested in stocks in the first place. You should be invested in bonds or cash 
uh, or some combination depending on your time frame. If you think you might need this money in the next year or two, you're just going to leave it in cash and you're not going to even take on the investment risk. If you might need it on a scale of two to seven, two to 10 years, maybe a, a mixture of stocks and bonds as a, as a balanced portfolio. And you're, again, those bonds are going to be yielding interest and so you're going to pay taxes on that interest, but you don't want to take on the investment risk. It's the, all the stocks are good for long-term strategies, 10 plus years. And again, if you just buy and hold, not only are you weathering the volatility that you know is going to come, but you're reducing your tax burden and improving your after-tax total return. So that's one of the things I, I continually point out that that asset allocation tied to time frame is more important than the taxes. But I love your point that if you're trying to be a little more active to get over the taxes that you have to pay requires a pretty high hurdle. And that, that's another argument in favor of passive over active that is hard. It, it's, it's possible. And I'd say some active strategies that are folk acknowledging and kind of accounting for taxes will focus on long-term capital gains. They can usually get enough capital losses to offset so they can get close, but they're already getting close after fees and it's harder for them to do better. I think, I think it is possible, but there is that hurdle does exist. Right. Perhaps a word of caution. I don't know if I want to encourage this too much, but if you are going to trade it, then buy, it does make more sense to do it in your retirement account than your taxable account, just, <laughs> just for some of these reasons. The other thing I want to mention is we, we talked about how if you save 6000 in your IRA a year for 40 years, you might have a million bucks. But let, let's talk about what if you did that in a taxable account. And let's say you bought a stock and you never sold it for 40 years and it matched the market return and now you have about a million dollars. Well, we talked about, you know, the 3% rule or the 4% rule, just using a packet of the napkin math, you could take out about 30,000 a year for indefinitely or 40,000 a year for about 30 years on that million dollars around your retirement. But the good news is, if you're only taking out about that much, your tax rate on capital gains is below the threshold for being taxed. So in effect, you might be able to match a return on a retirement account on a dollar for dollar basis by understanding that there are some advantages of being able to take money out and having to pay zero on capital gains if you're below the threshold. I like that strategy. And that, that's one of the things I try to point out. Again, it's not retirement accounts good, taxable accounts bad. It's if you're going to be doing long-term investing, let's take advantage and make sure we understand those capital gains rates. And that ends up being one of the strategies I'll do sometimes. So we talked about in your late 60s, doing Roth conversions. Sometimes it actually makes sense to sell stocks that have a gain, you actually kind of want to harvest the gain when you're going to be in a low tax bracket because you might be able to realize a few dozen thousand dollars in gains, but still be low enough that you pay 0% capital gains rate. That's another one of those potential strategies when you have no earned income, so you're no salary, haven't started 
retirement account distributions, haven't started Social Security. Sometimes it could be a sabbatical. Sometimes it could be a maternity or paternity leave. But if your income's low enough, that might be a time to harvest capital gains and you're reestablishing a new basis. You're not selling on the investment and getting out completely, but you're going to sell it, realize the gain. It's going to add to your taxes that year and you buy it back and you establish a new basis going forward so that your capital gain or your, your unrealized gain in the future will be less. Right. The small caveat is there's a, a 30 day window where you have to wait before you buy back or you buy back something similar. If, if that's the case. Uh, I want to, we'll double check that cause I don't think the wash sale applies to gains. I think that only applies to capital losses. Oh, yep. Yeah, yep. Absolutely. You're right. Yep. That's a good point. So yeah, for the gains, that's a good point. You, you could reset your, your basis. Yeah. I like so. that. The last thing I wanted to just quickly mention was I want I do want to point out that using municipal bonds or municipal bond funds, these are bonds issued by municipalities. So it's states, local governments, and the interest on municipal bonds is federally tax-free. And usually, I know it is the case in California, I'm pretty sure it's the case for most other states that have a state income tax. If a California resident buys a California muni bond, then California will also make it state tax-free. So even though normal corporate bonds are taxable, that interest is taxable, in a non-qualified account, especially if we have that shorter or moderate or medium time frame where we're going to reduce our stocks and add bonds in the portfolio, for tax benefits, sometimes a municipal bond can make more sense. But it's important to understand your individual tax situation because everyone knows that municipal bonds are income tax-free. They actually do a taxable equivalent yield. That's kind of how the bonds get priced. And they're assuming that at the same level of risk, a municipality does not have to pay as much interest as a corporate bond because that tax benefit's known. So if you have a high tax rate individually, municipal bonds probably make more sense. But if you have a low income tax rate, you may not see that benefit as much. But that is one of the things to look at with taxable accounts, using bonds to reduce the risk, reduce the investment risk. But municipal bonds can also help with the taxes instead of paying ordinary income on those interest rates. But then you want to account for municipal bonds are going to have slower interest rates and lower coupons anyways, because of the market acknowledges that if there's the same level of risk, it's going to focus on that after-tax total return. So yeah, those of your head, are very you know, good points. Do you know other states that do a lot of municipal bonds? I know Cal California is just big enough and has a really high state income tax rate that it tends to make a lot of sense. I don't know off the top of my head, but traditionally what I've noticed with bonds is a, a couple of things. In the past, maybe there, there was some understanding that it might just make sense to put bonds in your retirement accounts just because they're subject to a higher tax rate. 
But these days, the returns on bonds are, are just kind of much lower. And, you know, interest rates are, are quite low, as, as we know as well. So that, that may not make as much sense. So now that the recommendation is, is more in line with kind of what you've been saying, Aaron, where you may want to just go for a tax efficiency in a taxable account and try to get a municipal bond if you're in a higher tax bracket. So it, when it comes to where to put which assets in terms of taxable or retirement, now it, it probably makes the most sense to just think about the tax efficiency of your investment. If it has a pretty high return, but it's not that efficient, meaning it's throwing off lots of dividends and ordinary income tax rate concerns, then you probably want to keep those in your retirement account. And if you have investments that are very tax efficient, meaning low dividends and not so much in terms of interest, well, those might be more sensible for your taxable account. So okay, that, That's so you, something to think about. You're talking about asset location, where if you work with a financial planner and you're at a stage in your life where you want an overall asset allocation of about 60% stocks and 40% bonds, you don't need to have your IRA invested 60-40 and your taxable account invested 60-40. You can actually choose to invest more of the bonds in your pre-tax traditional IRA more of your growth stocks and like whatever is the most aggressive, highest, uh, highest yield, highest churning in terms of taxes. So it's most active. You'll see things like small caps or international or emerging markets might make sense in your Roth IRA. And then in your taxable account, large caps that don't issue dividends or might have a low dividend yield. And then kind of using the municipal bonds to fill that in. So you can get your overall asset allocation, that mixture of stocks and bonds based on time frame and risk tolerance, but it doesn't have to be the same in each account. You can use asset location to choose which accounts will hold which investment. Right. So with this type of notion, you're basically, as you said, thinking about a portfolio for the whole household rather than individual silos for your retirement accounts and for your taxable accounts and so on. And what this allows is the ability to take advantage of different assets for different buckets, depending on the tax situation involved. And it does make things a little bit more complicated. So realize that you will be bringing more complexity, but the benefit is you may provide more efficiency and higher returns potentially. Now, the, the one thing to keep in mind, though, is your returns from different accounts won't be the same anymore or anywhere near each <laughs> other just because you have completely different things going on. So you'll have to be aware of that come a year or two later when you realize that these returns are, are quite different. Yeah, you get into really interesting things of maybe you do your, you had a 60-40 portfolio in a traditional IRA and you do a Roth conversion and you invest your traditional IRA, mostly bonds, and your Roth IRA, mostly stocks, and then you get wildly different returns, you even start to get into what are called recharacterizations. It's kind of undoing a Roth conversion. If the stocks went down, it might actually make sense to recharacterize back because the point of a 
good Roth strategy or Roth conversion is that all the growth is tax-free. If you're going down, you end up paying higher tax rates on the conversion than you would taking money out. It, it can it can get complex, and there's definitely some strategies that combine traditional pre-tax, taxable accounts, Roths. Rebalancing gets harder. Where okay, now stocks shoot up, and so our portfolio is now. 70 30 how do we rebalance back to a 60 40 and you end up buying bonds in the roth or something like that to to decide you have to decide is the investment risk greater than the taxes and that's that's always a a spectrum it's always a investment decision tax decision and there's gonna be some place in the middle that makes sense for you right Last thing I, I just want to hammer home a little bit is, uh, unfortunately, we don't have crystal balls either, and neither does our government, and th- they like to change rules and regulations and, and taxes all, all the time. So what, what we aim to understand is we're trying to plan for what makes sense today, but things will likely change, and we, we have to realize that when it does, other situations make more sense. <laughs> Yeah, it's it changes all the math when Congress changes tax rates, and all of a sudden, anyone who did a Roth conversion and paid taxes at the higher rate earlier would have been better off not doing the Roth conversion and waiting until after the tax law change. And most certainly, if you realize you have a good taxable scenario now realize that they may not stay the same in the future that, yeah. that's just kind of how things go yeah well we got we got through a lot today it's good to understand it and this is one of those things of it can keep getting more and more complex i, I think having a good strategy the buy and hold will work regardless of the account the, the consistent increased savings is something you can control and it's going to be incredibly impactful. The asset allocation based on risk tolerance and time frame, again, something you can control and will have a big impact. But as you start taking care of those, those big rocks and you're starting to look for those marginal benefits, understanding how investments are taxed in different types of accounts and, and how to take advantage of that it's not going to make as big a difference, but it can start making a difference over a long enough time frame. If you keep getting these extra one to two percent marginal benefits over a couple decades, that's like Trish will keep saying. You were talking about increasing your net worth by a third. That if you can kind of make all these decisions right along the way. Great. Well, good stuff. I'm glad we covered a lot of these bases in this conversation. As would I. Thank you much for your time, Trisha. I, I really do appreciate it. Thanks, Aaron. And thanks, everybody, for listening. And of course, if you like what you're hearing, do spread the word. Thanks, everybody. Bye. Bye. We appreciate you joining us today for this episode of the Mind Money Spectrum podcast. Be sure to visit mindmoneyspectrum.com to access the entire library of episodes. Remember, it's not black and white, but the wide spectrum of gray area where you get to pursue the freedoms you want in life. Opinions voiced in this material are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. All performance referenced is historical as no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested directly. Have a nice day.